Okay, sounds good. I think we're going. Hi, Pat. So, is there anything I would like to talk about before we plunge back into 2 Samuel? Charlotte, Princess, how are you doing? We were in Hawaii last week. Yes, you were in Hawaii last week. Yeah. Not on Maui, I hope. Bill and I decided to get married. Wow, congratulations. Got to take good care of her. She's one of my favorite people, man, so I'm just saying. <laughs> no, that's great. That's wonderful. Congratulations. That is super. Anybody <coughs> want to try to top that? <laughs> Anybody have anything else that they would like to talk about? Questions? Anything? Okay, well, we're going to plunge back in. So we are in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And we are in the story of when David brought the ark to Jerusalem. And last week, we, we finished with the story of Uzzah. Remember, Uzzah is one of the men who is accompanying the ark on the cart. And Uzzah, he sees the oxen stumble and he reaches up probably just by reflex and touches the ark and then dies because he is it, he becomes too familiar if you know what i mean by that too familiar with the this ark that is that is the holiness of god the whole god is holy and we are not and we can make a mistake if we treat that holiness of god too too casually um, I think that happens in actually different parts of life. If you, I, I used to fly jet airplanes when I was a young man. You learned not to treat it casually ever because it could reach out and grab you anytime, right? So even though you might do the same thing day after day after day, you had to discipline yourself not to begin to treat the whole thing very casually and, and Uzzah makes a mistake. And in keeping with other parts of the Old Testament, he, 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 he pays a price for it. And then the ark is going to go on. Now, I'm going to pick up in chapter 6 at verse 8. That's about where we finished. Remember last week, I even went long. I don't know what I was getting wound up about, but I was getting wound up about something. So look at verse 8. This is after Uzzah dies. Then David was angry because Yahweh's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day the place is called Perez Uzzah, which means outbreak against Uzzah. Okay. David was afraid of Yahweh that day and said, How can the ark of Yahweh ever come to me? So if David was himself going to be over-familiar with the ark of God, he is not going to be now. He was not willing to take the ark of Yahweh to be with him in the city of David. Now he's, a, he's just concerned about the whole enterprise. It reminds me of the story of the Exodus when Uh, the people have rebelled against God and made the golden calf, and God says, I can't go on with them. This is what he says to them, I can't go on with them. 
you know, my holiness will break out and they will be consumed. These sinful, rebellious people are already making a golden calf and worshiping this calf and thanking it for saving them from Egypt. It, it, I just can't go on. So Moses persuades God to go on, but David is, I think David's right to be apprehensive here. The, the Israelites had already abused the ark, right? They took the ark into battle against the Philistines. And that because they wanted to use like it's, I don't know what, it's like it's magic powers or something in their minds. And they lost the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines and the, the, the long story of it finally coming back to them. And so David is apprehensive now. He's afraid now. So what he does instead, in the second half of verse 10, he says instead he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, which is presumably not an Israelite. The Ark of Yahweh remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. So the Ark, right, the box with the poles and the cover I described last week, was there for three months and Yahweh blessed <coughs> Obed-Edom and his entire household. So, okay. Now King David was told, Yahweh has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the Ark of God. So you can infer from that that Obed-Edom treated the Ark with the respect and in some way the distance that he needed to. So David went up to bring up, went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. This is in a way picking up where things were three months ago, right? Because there was a lot of rejoicing when they finally decided they're going to bring the ark, you know, from Kirith-Jerim and bring it to Jerusalem. And we talked about that. And so now there's more rejoicing and singing and playing instruments and so forth. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord, the ark of Yahweh, had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf to God. This is a whole big ritualistic carrying of the ark and sacrificing to God and with rejoicing and celebrating and the rest of it. Wearing a linen ephod, that's like an um, overshirt. Okay. David was dancing before Yahweh with all his might. Have you ever, have you ever been just so caught up in something that you just wanted to dance? Happens to me all the time, doesn't it, Patty? Yes, it does. She says, Scott, why are you dancing? Well, I don't know. I'm. <laughs> it's just, it's just, yeah. It's just, it's just a natural response. And I do have moves, don't I, Patty? I have moves. <laughs> I don't know what the moves are, but I have moves. I know. Thank you, Jim. Get me under control. Reel me back in, Jim. Okay. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before Yahweh with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. It's all joyful, joyful, celebrating, rejoicing, just wow. Okay, we're going to... We're going to get our act together now. We're going to bring the ark 
to Jerusalem. It's going to be up, up, up. As the ark of Yahweh was entering the city of David, this is the city that David captured. It was a Jebusite city. It's only called the city of David because David captured it and decided he would call it the city of David. I'm going to talk about the city of David in a minute with a couple of maps I have. Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window in the harem. So let me put up a couple of things here. Okay, there, there's a painting that, that I've used before um, with Michael and some of the other women in the harem looking out the window. This is where they live their lives now. And they're looking out the window at David and the procession bringing the ark inside the walls of Jerusalem. When she saw, this is Michael, when she saw King David leaping and dancing before Yahweh, she, she despised him in her heart. So let's review Michael for a minute. Michael was the daughter of Saul. Michael loved David. Michael assisted David in his escape from Saul and indeed never did not see David again for a very long time. And, and she, though she had married David, um, because Saul had given her to David in marriage, and David had to capture the, what, a hundred foreskins of Philistine warriors or something, Saul gave her to a man named Paltiel. And from every appearance in the short description in Scripture, she and Paltiel were very happy. Because we're told that when David said, I want her back, Paltiel wept. He, it's like he followed along behind for a while, just kind of weeping all the way. And now she is consigned to this harem. I don't know if she's laid eyes on David. It isn't like he brought her home. She's back amongst David's property in that way. And she's going to live out the end of her day, till the end of her days, in this harem, in this community of women um, with only a window to the outside world. And now she sees David leaping and dancing before Yahweh, and she despised him in her heart. I was working on this section yesterday and I, I thought what I wanted to do was to find the parallel section in the book of Chronicles. Now the book of Chronicles, it's really a pretty boring book. It's really a book of records. King, if you ever just glance through it, you'll see, yeah, there's little bits of narrative, but it's so much of its record keeping. Here's all the musicians and here's all the this and all this, this and all the names. But in there, you find this very sentence that she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before Yahweh. Okay. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. 
Yahweh, Yahweh Shaddai. Okay? So, just to review, maybe, there are, generally speaking, two kinds of offerings that the Israelites would offer up to God. One is the burnt offering, noted here twice. The burnt offering, that is where the entire animal would be burned up. None of it's left, just ashes. And part of the furniture, furniture, part of the furnishings of the tabernacle was a big, well, you and I would call it a barbecue pit that would sit out in the open in front of the temple tent proper. And the second kind of offerings are fellowship offerings. These are where the animal would be cooked and shared to be eaten by people in the community, hence a fellowship offering, right? Fellowship of the people with God and they cook the animal and they eat the animal. It's like what we would call an actual barbecue. Okay? Just, I say that because it's, you know, the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings are referred to so often. That's the gist of it. Verse 19, Then David gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. So, in this big celebration, David is a pretty good politician too, isn't he? Because, remember, he, he's anointed by God to be king, but he had to be supported in that kingship by the 12 tribes. So here he is, he's, back, he's brought the ark back to Jerusalem. He's brought the ark to Jerusalem. It had never been in Jerusalem. He brought the ark to Jerusalem. And they've danced and celebrated and so on. So let, before I go on with the rest of it, let me go back a couple of slides. This is the one I had last week. Very straightforward. Little oblong shape is the Jebusite city that David captures by going in through the way that they got water. Because they evidently did not have a water source inside the city walls. And so they would have had like a tunnel underground in which that they would use to, to get water. Um, this is an old drawing of that city. And I'm gonna come over here since I've got this long range clicker Okay, so we're going to talk about this a second because I get questions about this kind of thing all the time. There are things about this map that I agree with and there are things about this map I do not agree with. So this is the oblong shape, the city of David. Okay, the Jebusite city that David captures and then he builds a palace which the artist has put here. Okay, um, generally speaking, palaces would be and homes of the affluent people would be uphill. Like if you're going uphill, that's where they would live because it smelled better, right? Yeah, really. You know, like down at the bottom, you don't get the same breeze and it's, yeah. So anyway, this is the palace. It is somewhere in here that David pitches the tent that I just read about, okay? for the ark to be in. It's not the tabernacle. It's the ark. And he puts it in a tent. Now, this artist put, puts up here on this mountaintop, this is, this is Mount Moriah, okay? 
up, puts up on this mountaintop basically the tabernacle and he labels it, whoops, the tabernacle. I guess you can't go blind if it, actually I put this in the back of your head, right? So, <laughs> so that's inconceivable to me. It's inconceivable to me that the Israelites would put the tabernacle and most importantly the ark in a place without walls, yeah. right? I've said what made a city were walls because you had to have a way to keep the bad guys out. Otherwise, you were just some helpless little village. As late as the medieval period in Europe, they would build walls. And when the bad guys showed up, what did they do? They got as many people from the area right around the castle to come inside the walls of the city and the castle and the rest of it because that was the only way that you survived. So I don't think, now that is where the Temple of Solomon will be built, and indeed the city walls are gonna be expanded wow. and include all of that area. Yes? Well, it could have been because we know the Philistines couldn't wait to get rid of the ark. They were scared of it. And most people knew the power of the ark, so the chances of anybody touching it, knowing the history. So you could probably put it out there and, and nobody would bother it. Maybe, Don. Maybe they could put it out there and nobody would bother. It's been decades since the Philistines' experience with the ark. It's how many people really knew the story of Uzzah that weren't Israelite? And remember, the Israelites are there, but David had just captured this city, which tells you what? That there are a lot of non-Israelite peoples still living in this whole area. So I'm just saying, I mean, maybe. I, I, I'm just, if I were drawing this, I would not have stuck that up there myself. That is where the temple will go, and the city walls will be expanded to encompass it, right? But David does not build the temple. That's a key little piece to remember. David doesn't build the temple. It's his son Solomon who builds the temple, you know, nearly a thousand years before Jesus. But it's Mount Moriah, okay, right there. So I don't know where this map even came from. I just found it on where I find a lot of things, Google Images, and I thought it was helpful in that way. But Don could be right. They might have stuck it up there, thinking, who's going to mess with it? Well, perhaps somebody did. But, but David brings the ark inside the city, it says, and put it in a tent. So maybe that later they did move it up to that hilltop, unguarded, unprotected by walls. I don't know. Okay. All right. So. Let me, any questions about that map? Why, Andy? Why, well, not about the map, but God's throne was on the ark. Okay, God's throne on the ark. God is enthroned on the ark in this way. You have the box, you have the poles that are used to carry the box, rings to slide the poles through, and then you have the cover. And on the cover are two cherubim with wings that are facing each other and the wings are touching. And when it, so when it says God is enthroned on that ark, it means that that is where you would go to directly encounter 
the unmediated presence of God. The stone tablets with the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Yep. So when they lost the, about 400 years after all of this, the Babylonians will overrun Jerusalem, which by then will be a much larger place, and they will destroy the temple that Solomon built on Mount Moriah, and they will make off with the Ark of the Covenant. And what do they care about the cherubim or the stone tablets, right? So what probably happened to it, probably was melted down, right? Gold. Might have been taken back to Babylonia and um, just put in the, sort of their Fort Knox. There are stories of Jews making off with the Ark of the Covenant before Babylonia um, completes their siege of Jerusalem and buries it in Egypt. But those are just stories. There's also a story about it actually being in a Navy warehouse. <laughs> Maybe Army warehouse. So, so and I, you know, for me, when I come to questions like that, what do I want to do? I want to find the hypothesis that is the simplest and explains the most information that I have. That's my basic approach to all, such, all those kinds of questions. So for me, most likely the Babylonians took it back, melted it down, and the stone tablets and the ark are lost in that way. Pat? Millions of dollars have been spent searching for the ark. And all kinds of people have said, oh, we know where it is, but nobody's found it. Yes, Pat's pointing out that millions of dollars have been spent, and all kinds of people have said they know where the ark is, but they've never found it. Lots of television shows have been created, you know, the truth, the true story of the lost ark, right? Those usually crop up at Easter time or something, right? So, yeah, the same thing around Mount Sinai. We know the truth about exactly where Mount Sinai is. Well, you know, just don't, the Noah's Ark, just don't be gullible. That's all I'm saying. Just look at history, understand the Babylonians destroyed the city, they destroyed the temple. And what do conquerors do? They make off with the good stuff. They make off with the good stuff. Yeah. Babylonia is today modern-day Iraq. Persia is modern-day Iran. So you have Iran, and Iraq is closer to Israel. So the um, ancient city of Babylon and some of the architectural treasures from that time are actually in Iraq. Okay, and archaeologists have tried to protect them in the midst of all the problems in Iraq for the last, you know, umpty ump years. Anything else? Yes? Uzzah. Inadvertently touched the ark. Well, he didn't inadvertently. He reached out to touch it. Okay, he touched it. But, but my point is this. Since then, people touched, moved the ark all over. They may have melted it down. No, no stories about anybody dying because of that. There we go. That we know. She, the comment over here was, see, that we, no stories that we know of. 
But you see, so how, how was the ark to be moved from place to place? Did they, were, did they have to handle the box? No, they had the poles that you would slide through the rings. To the Babylonians? Because it, so Steve, it isn't really that the box has its own inherent magical power like in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's about the relationship between God and his people. And the box is, the box is the essence uh, in that way of God's holiness because the mercy seat on top of the box, on top of the ark, Remember, ark only means box. That's all it means. On top of the, the, the mercy seat with the cherubim, that is like a portal to God's dimension. And Moses would go in there, and he would come out with his face shining and from being standing in the unmediated glory of God. Right? So it's deeply mysterious, but it's not... It's not magic. It is, it, it's not like the Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, and the Babylonians don't respect it. It doesn't mean anything to them. They have no relationship with Yahweh. And so they take the Ark and they melt it, they melt it down. Because the Ark, the stone tablets in it, are about the covenant between God and his people. That's why it's so important. To, I'm not going to go off chasing a rabbit here. Okay, it's important to remember that the that the Ten Commandments, which, you know, we talk about it all the time and there's lawsuits around monuments to it, it was not, they were not given to the world. They were not given to the world. They were given to the Israelites at Mount Sinai and they are the essence, the heart of the law that God gives the Israelites, that they, the covenant that they enter into. And that is, that is, I think, really the way to understand it. The, ex the expansion, the larger project beyond the Israelites is about whom? Jesus. About, not, not really about the Ten Commandments. It's about, it's about Jesus. And Jesus comes. And now this word must be carried out. So even though the Jews of Jesus' day didn't feel any deep, well, any deep, they hardly felt any missionary zeal whatsoever. They didn't view that as part of their, their vocation in life. Jesus says, you are to be my witnesses. You're to go make disciples. You're to baptize. You're to teach. Right? That's the end of Matthew and the beginning of Acts. These, these instructions from Jesus because what God has done is to be taken to the ends of the earth, which we read about in Revelation on Sunday. All right? So, anything else? Yes, Charlotte? No. no, no. So they were just the tablets would have written, been written presumably in, in Hebrew. The languages are in that part of the world are related. I don't know how much the language of the Babylonians 
is a Semitic language like Hebrew is, but no, they couldn't have read it. You know, they had their own code. Um, the great code of the Babylonians was the code of Hammurabi, right? Hammurabi lived about 1800 BC, and he was one of the first to institute a legal code. And we have the cylinder today of the code of Hammurabi, which is carved into clay, which then hardened. Okay, so, and it's important because it conveys the idea that peoples had a growing sense of having a law. But the Hebrews' law was given them by whom? God. Not Hammurabi or some other king, given them by God. By God. And now David has brought all this back to Jerusalem, so of course he's dancing and he's celebrating. He's giving away raisin cakes, date cakes, loaves of bread. You remember, I remember when I was a kid, there was this little flat bakery item you could buy in the store that was had raisins in it and it was it was about that thick and you would have the you'd have a few pieces of it anybody remember remember those i love those things anyway of course verse 20 when david returned home to bless his household as the in latin terms the pater familias the head of the household. Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him, and she said this, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked, going around half naked, in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would do. Well, she put it pretty straightforwardly, didn't she? Remember, she's the daughter of a king herself, right? She's Saul's daughter. And she thinks this display by David is absolutely disgusting. Undignified. Right? It's sure, and surely all of that is covered, is, is colored by the fact that she despised the man at this point. So David says to her, verse 21, David said to Michael, It was before Yahweh who chose me rather than you, rather than your father, or anyone, or anyone from his house, which means any descendant of Saul's, when he appointed me ruler over Yahweh's people Israel. I will celebrate before Yahweh. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. And among these ancient people, that is a great, great, great sadness for this woman. A childless woman is the focus of some key biblical stories. Abraham's wife, Sarah. Hannah, mother of Samuel. Elizabeth, mother of John the Baptist. And here we find it that Michael, of course, she is never going to have children. She despises David. She will live out her life in this harem. 
Now, I remember back in 2012 when Arthur was just a young whippersnapper, still fairly new to staff, and he was going to preach a sermon series, and he wanted to preach a sermon series called Undignified, built on this passage of the extent that we should be ready and willing to celebrate God even if it seems that we are looking undignified or looking humiliated in the eyes of the world. It's God's eyes that matter, not the world's eyes. And David says, I'm, I'm dancing for God. I'm not dancing for you. I'll be more undignified than this. And I go, my, my mind goes to Philippians chapter 2. When it says, you know, Jesus took on human form, born in human likeness, became a slave. He was humiliated, but stayed faithful all the way to death, even death on the cross. Crucifixion was, it was awful, terrible, the worst physical death that, that Rome had to offer, but in addition, it was humiliating. That's why it, it couldn't even be spoken of in polite company. It was humiliating in a culture that is the currency of life is not money. The currency of life is honor and shame. Gaining honor, avoiding shame. And in that, Jesus gives himself over to humiliation and the end of dignity as he is beaten and his clothes are ripped off of him. Um, and he is crucified. So David is not, he doesn't, he doesn't meet Michael's opinion about what, what a king should be. But neither did Jesus. There is the world's way, and then there is God's way. And in this, I, when David makes a remark about the slave girls, I, I don't think he's doing anything except saying, look, I, I know all you, all you fancy elite types. You, I'm all undignified and stuff. But these people who are at the bottom, at the bottom, they will honor me. So, okay, so thoughts or questions about that? Because this is a big breaking point in 2 Samuel right here. Yes. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah. You could ask him. He said, hey, Arthur, talk, Scott was talking about your sermon, Undignified. It was a whole like little series, about six sermons long, Undignified. It was, it was, it was good, and it was an important point. Charlotte. Do you think Michael maybe ever had any children because David never ever came to her? Yes. It Did, that she couldn't have children, probably. I don't, it doesn't, it, it doesn't, to me, it does not in the least imply she couldn't, but she doesn't. Because if you understand how these harems work, she despises David. She's gone out there, chewed him out, and she is never going to see him again. She is going to live in this space, whatever big it is, with these other women in the harem, because David had multiple wives and concubines and all that stuff, till the end of her days. Till the end of her days. Yep, that's how these things worked. Like I said many times, women in our world would not want to go back and be a woman in this world. I don't think any woman I know wants to turn the clock back a hundred years. 
when women were just getting the right to vote. Isn't that astounding? That only a little bit more than 100 years ago in this, that there are people living in America today, a few who were alive when women couldn't vote. That astounding. Vote. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. It's something. It's crazy. What? Yes, Pat, men haven't been the same. So we, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Pat. <laughs> I'm going to tell Kim. <laughs> oh, no. See, I, I let him go, man. It's all right. It's all right. Just don't, just don't anybody tell Kim. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. Yes, Patty. Never says David loved Michael. She loved him so much. She loved him. He's a man who adores her. He doesn't need her. He doesn't. A number of wives, kids coming he, out all over the place. And he goes back and wants They're just popping out babies all over. And so to me, it's kind of like just It's like a taking. So, so if, for those of you who can't hear Patty, yeah. if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, when the people are demanding a human king, Right, because God is supposed to be their king. And Samuel comes to them and says, No, no, you don't want that. Kings are takers. They take, take, take. They'll take your farms, they'll take your animals, they'll take your women, they'll take your young men and send them off to wars. Kings are takers. Take, 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 take. Okay? A passage you have to remember for what comes ahead. Actually, you should remember it for all of your life. Power, taking, take, 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 take. So Patty's pointing out that in the story of David and Michael, David is a taker. She doesn't want to go and be with David and live in this harem. That's why she despises him. Because he became king and he took her from her life with whom? Paltiel. And why did he take her? Because he has taken into his household a daughter of Saul, further cementing his superiority over the household of Saul. She can't make trouble for David if she's locked away in a harem. And in the ancient world, when you supplanted a king by whatever means it might be, except just straightforward succession, you were concerned about being supplanted yourself. And so you will see more, more evidence. You remember we've already met, haven't we met Mephibosheth? A little bit, just a little bit comment about Mephibosheth? I think, yes. Just a little bit that he was dropped as, they were, as, they, as the household of Saul was fleeing, was fleeing 
when they heard the results of the battle. Because in the ancient world, what would follow would be that the new, the new king would come in and kill the entire household of Saul, thereby eliminating all future rivals. Which is kind of happened in Star Wars, I think. Anyway, yes? So Don's pointing out, well, you know, maybe David never went to see her to have a baby with her because he was concerned about creating a grandchild of Saul. I personally think he knew he was despised. He didn't like her. He had no use for having a, grand, a child, a grandchild of Saul. And so he just, I just think he just locks her away and leaves her in there. Well, so Don is, Don is pointing out that, well, you know, in the scheme of things in this world, if you were in the king's harem, you would, be, you would have a roof over your head, you would have food to eat, you would be protected. Um, so in that way, there were a few pluses, but then again, how much liberty do you have? How much freedom do you have? It's, Don, you're right. Don, Don is right. I mean... Nobody in this world today wants to go and be a woman in this world. It was, it was, you just don't. No woman would. I can't imagine it. Um, so, okay, anything else? Okay, so, you sure? Because we're going we're gonna to shift, the narrative really shifts here. Now, in your Bible, there are certain chapters that really matter. Okay, not because you're going to have to like memorize them or something, but you should know what that chapter is about. For me, one of them is 1 Samuel 8, that taking, taking, taking. This is another one. 2 Samuel 7 is another chapter that you need to have in your mind, at least as far as it's being there and what the general, general purpose is is here what's going to happen here in 2 Samuel 7 so let's see after the king was settled in his palace and Yahweh had given him rest from all his enemies around him he David said to Nathan the prophet Nathan is the current prophet on the scene okay here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent Remember Hiram of Tyre sent David building materials to make a nice home and all that stuff. So he, David's right. He's living, he's living in a super nice place. Super nice place. That's David's a rendition of David's palace there, close to the mountainside. And God's living in a tent. Remember the tent... The ark represents, even if it's not the tabernacle, because nobody, I think, who comments on this believes it's the full tabernacle at this point. It's just a temporary structure. It's, it a lot of it would have had to have been replaced several times over the course of time, because it's fabric. Right? And so 
the point is, David says, here I am living in a house of cedar, this glorious home, palace, and the ark of God remains in a tent. So Nathan replied to the king, saying, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for Yahweh is with you. But that night, the word of Yahweh came to Nathan. Got to pay attention to who's speaking to whom. This is God speaking to Nathan, saying, quote, Go and tell my servant, this is what Yahweh says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelled in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. Meaning what? That God has had to put up with his presence being in a tent. That's the t tabernacle is a tent. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any one of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Verse 8. Because God had never said that. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what Yahweh Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great. Like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel. And will plant them so that they can have a home of their own. And no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore. As they did at the beginning. And have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. So this is God telling Nathan all of this. That this is what he's, Nathan then is supposed to go and say to David. Okay? And God goes on. Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh himself will establish a house for you. That's a big, <laughs> big verse. It is the house of David is the lineage of David. So you have David and boom, 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 down you go. Turn to, let's just see this, turn, put a placeholder there and turn to the first chapter of Matthew. So the first chapter of Matthew, the first chapter, famously, the first chapter of Matthew was a genealogy, right? It is three groups of 14. Everybody's not on here, and surprisingly, four women are, because they typically weren't. So. Look at verse 2. That's Abraham. Look down. If, if yours is organized like mine is, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, 
Perez, Hezron, all the way down, all the way down, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, and then David. So, as an aside, will you notice that Ruth is the great-grandmother of David? I think I counted that right. Great-grandmother of David. That's something. Ruth is not even, she was not born an Israelite. Right? She said to Naomi, I will go with you. Your people will be my people. I will worship your God. She becomes, she becomes one of God's people by virtue of her worship of God's people and her living in faithfulness with God's people. But she's not born. She doesn't have an ounce of Abraham's blood flowing in her veins. And yet she becomes the great-grandmother of King David. So there's David in the genealogy of Jesus and from then on it continues all the way down. So the house of David is that line that continues after David. And these are all kings. Solomon, Rehoboam, oh he was an idiot. <laughs> Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, oh Manasseh was terrible. Amon, Josiah, these were all kings in the line of David, okay? Just like the family of Win the Windsors, right, have been the kings and queens of Europe, of England for how long? I don't know, I think a long time. The household of David. So God says to David, ah, God himself is going to establish a house for you. A line of descendants. When your days are over, David, this is what God is telling Nathan, who's going to relay this to David. When your days are over, when you're dead, and you rest with your ancestors when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. These will be men who not only have the blood of Abraham in their veins through David, but they have the blood of David in their veins. <coughs> DNA-wise. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. This will be the first of David's successors. This will be his son Solomon who, not his firstborn son, Solomon is, is a son he has by Bathsheba. It is, he is not, Solomon is not even the firstborn child of Bathsheba's. That child dies <coughs> at about the age of two. This is Solomon, is what we're referring to here. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And Solomon does build that temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever because he's in the line of David. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from whom? Saul. Wow. Wow. Whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom 
will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation from God to Nathan and then on to David. This, my friends, this is why in the messianic expectations of the Jews in the centuries leading up to Jesus, the Messiah, a royal term, the anointed one, the Messiah, it's a kingly term, was, had to come from the house of David, had to be a descendant of David, had to have a claim on the household of David. Couldn't be just any bright, talented, God-fearing person. Had to come from the, had to have a claim on the house of David. Because this, God has said to David, one from your house will sit on the throne forever. That's how it comes to be. Those messianic expectations. The Messiah has to be a son of David. Not the next generation, obviously, but in the line of David's sons. All goes back to the second Samuel 7. That's what makes it such a pivotal, such a pivotal chapter for everything that comes that comes after. And if you're familiar with Jesus' genealogy, you see that his how can I put it? His let, well, let's go back to Matthew 1. Why do I have to it's helpful to see these things. So I should have kept mine open there. It will take me a second. I'm still getting used to this giant print Bible. Okay, so the first third of it is Abraham to David. The second third of it is David to the exile. And the last third of it is from the exile to Babylon to Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. And so whenever people read that, they say to me, well, Scott, he's not Joseph's son. He doesn't have the DNA of Joseph in him. Jesus doesn't, because he is born to Mary, but he's born of the Holy Spirit. And I say, yes, 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 you're right. So people then ask me, well, Scott, then what gives? What gives is the fact that this genealogy demonstrates Jesus' legal claim on that line, on that house. And the best way to understand it is like the way adoption works. When you are adopted, your previous birth father and all that stuff all disappears. You get an entirely new birth certificate, actually. Well, and on it's the name of your adopting father if that's what's going on, right? So, um, it's a legal claim, which is, which is the same. You know, this, this metaphor of adoption and family is one that Paul uses a great deal. That, you know, we are Jesus' brothers and sisters adopted into his family. But that adoption is a power, it, it isn't, adoption doesn't leave you a little bit short. Unless I told you, no matter how much research you did, 
you would never know that my birth certificate, which reads Scott Engel, was one that I got when I was like 11 because my original birth certificate said Scott Hubley. Julius Caesar adopted his nephew, Octavius, who became Caesar Augustus. So, Mike. Yes. And I was at the, uh, the office where the records are kept, where I saw the official take a point and mark out her Russian name in that book yes. that reported her birth, and write in the name we were going to give her when she came to America. U.S. law basically works the same way. Ancient law worked the same way. That's what adoption is. It doesn't, you're, you're not like a cheaper version just because you're adopted alongside your birthed brothers and sisters. Okay, so wow, can you imagine? This is what God tells Nathan and now he's going to go tell this to David? This is huge. <laughs> This is God, the creator of the cosmos, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who's coming to David and saying, one from your house, one from your line, will always sit on the throne of Israel. And when it comes the time that the pagan oppressors interrupt that, after the Babylonian exile, there is this growing expectation that God will, read, will lift up a right king, a correct king. And that king has to come from the house of David. Herod the Great. Herod the Great tried to ingratiate himself to the people. He was not Jewish, but he tried to ingratiate himself to the people and build these magnificent things, you know, before he sort of went mad, but he did go mad. But he could never be seen by the people as the rightful king. Why? Because he had no connection to the house of David. That's why Matthew begins the genealogy as he does. Yeah. His gospel as he does. Yeah. Because that's the work of prophets. Prophets in it would bring you this, would be the intermediaries often between God and others. And you will see the role that Nathan has to play going forward in this drama. And it will become clearer maybe why, why God spoke to Nathan rather than directly to David. But that's, that's what prophets were there for. What? It's a formality. Well, formality. yeah, I mean, it could be a formality, yes. But I mean, this is, this is what the prophets are there for. Formally and functionally. Yes? Good point, Beth. It provides a witness, right? Because Nathan, who is not, to whom this promise has not been made, is now a witness to this promise because God gave the promise to David. Good point. Anything else?
14, 14. It's not a biblical number. Why 14? It's seven times two, and seven is. Okay. But it's, yeah, seven times two, and it is. The key thing to recognize is the systematic nature of the genealogy, which tells you it's not meant to be complete. That's not the point of it, okay? It's to convey, it's, it's a genealogical telling of the story from Abraham to David, David to the exile, and the exile to Jesus in this neat three-part groups of, three groups of 14. Yeah. Which is seven and seven and seven and seven. Yep, seven and seven. Is somebody keeping some genealogy going back to Jesus' day, I would guess not. And the reason is because there was so much dislocation when the Romans burned Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, and then so much dislocation when, when the Romans finished the job in 135 and basically erased Judea from the, their geography books, and the Jews were all dispersed. So I'm guessing, I'm guessing not. But there might be some sect of Judaism that thinks they have the right genealogy because you'll see in small little sects of ultra-Orthodox, people lift it up as like, well, he's like the Messiah, this rabbi such and such. But that's about all I know. Well, David, Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before Yahweh, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if that were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. So, this is a really good moment for David, is it not? He is overwhelmed. He feels unworthy. He doesn't understand it. And he goes before God and said, I'm a mere human. I'm just a guy. What are we, what's happening here? What's happening here? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. Okay, that's important verse. Look what it says. What more can David do? For you know your servant, Lord, for the sake of your word, God, and according to your will, God, you have done this great thing. That's what grace is all about. David doesn't go to God and say, well, Man, I know I was a, I'm a great warrior and this and that and I, I sort of get this, God. He says, no, this is because of your will, your desire, your choice, not mine. David doesn't lift up anything about himself, his worthiness to be, oh, you made the right choice, God, yeah. right? How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you. Now that is a telling phrase.
because we are now in the period when it is dawning on the Israelites that they don't just have the best God in the block, the only God is Yahweh, which will come to full flower in the great Super Bowl story of 1 Kings 18. But there is no one like you, there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears, and who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever and you Lord have become their God well first of all of course God was their God God the God is everybody's God but what's what's missing to my ears what's missing in this paragraph that begins in chapter 22 I mean it's it's correct God redeemed them as a people for God's self make a name for himself to perform great and awesome wonders so that people can see it that's a lot of what lies behind the confrontation with Pharaoh by helping them amongst their enemies driving out the nation but there's no sense of well really why is God doing this it's not connected to Abraham 12 3 it's just yeah these are the people, these are the ones you chose. To me, you see in it the glimmers, the little, little glimmers of what would come to be in Jesus and Paul's day a very strong sense of ethnic privilege among the Jews. A very strong sense of ethnic privilege without an, without an accompanying sense of mission or evangelism. Or like, why? And Paul will talk about that in his letters. Romans is a classic example uh, of Paul working against their, the, ethnic, the sense of ethnic privilege that the Jews had. Because there is a mission, there is a purpose. If they miss it, they miss it. If they don't get it, they don't get it. Maybe that's part of their problem as a people. Because they don't get it, they, um, they, they, they fail to really take in this, all the earth will be blessed through the family of Abraham. And, but in Jesus, that becomes, becomes full flower. The instructions by Jesus at the end of Matthew, the instructions by Jesus in Acts, the day of Pentecost, Peter's sermon, it's all about purpose, it's all about mission. As we are today in 2023, Christian churches are not Christian churches just for ourselves, but for the sake of others and for the world. So we're going to stop right there because it's almost, because it, did I see a hand go up a minute ago that I blew right past? No. Yeah.
Well, we'll we'll come back to this to this point. So we'll pick it up at verse 25, I think, because it in five minutes I can't do that and talk about it both unless I do what I did last week, and I don't. I want to be respectful of your time. So we'll come back here to verse 25 next week and talk about 2 Samuel 7 messianic expectations maybe we'll throw a little Palm Sunday in a little Judas Maccabee in 25 isn't it isn't that where I just stopped 25 yeah I think so okay so before I close this in prayer anything anybody Okay, let's pray. Gracious Lord, you made such promises to David about his household. And we know it's about your purposes. Your purposes that all the families would be blessed on earth. Jesus came, but he, Jesus came with purposes for us to be witnesses to Jesus, to make disciples, to go out and to, to teach people and teach them how to obey and to baptize. Um, let us, may we never lose sight of your larger project that we are all part of and in which we all have responsibilities. For none of us have been saved. None of us have been reconciled with you just for our own sake, but indeed for the sake of others. Let us never forget that. All this we pray in the great and glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.